0: Well, thank you, Duncan. I uh, trust you can hear me. You'll let me know if you can't. Uh, Greetings from my home in Leicester. Uh, It's wonderful to be with you, even if it is by Zoom rather than in person. And I'm coming at a very significant time for your church because I know that you have just had a wonderful answer to prayer in terms of your future venue and the topic this morning from the Sermon on the Mount Is Jesus teaching about prayer? Now, I don't know about you, but when I was a young Christian, I was fed any number of uh, wonderful biographies of great Christians to read. And several of them were great, what was called prayer warriors. And I confess that I was totally intimidated by them. They all seemed to suggest that I should belong to the prayer SAS, uh, and I wasn't even an army cadet uh, uh, unfit to serve as a foot soldier, let alone anything else. It was made worse by the fact that actually the little gospel hall where I grew up and found faith and was baptized, had once been led by a man called George Muller. His picture was on the wall of our Sunday school every week. I have to tell you, he was there 130 years before I was, but George Muller was a great man of prayer who moved to Bristol and set up orphanages that he ran by faith. And he was held up as a local hero of prayer, let alone a national warrior or international warrior of prayer. Well, when you're intimidated like that, More of George Muller later. But when you're intimidated by that, it's worth going back to basics, isn't it? When you've had great victories, to remind yourself of what prayer is essentially all about. And in the Sermon on the Mount, in the passages that we're looking at this morning, Jesus gives us three basic lessons on prayer. Let me read to you the first. It comes in. Matthew chapter six, and it's verses five to uh, six. When you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they've received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door, And pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees you in secret will reward you. Here's the first lesson Jesus wants to teach about the practice of prayer. How we should pray. And there's something here that he condemns and something here that he commends. This is how not to do it. And on the other hand, this is how you should do it. In fact, when Jesus says, don't do it like this, he has two targets in mind. The first target are the Jewish religious leaders in particular, for whom prayer is very often a performance. They do it publicly, drawing attention to themselves, using very wonderful liturgy and poetic phrases so that everyone can look at them and say, wow, they must be really in league with God. And Jesus says, you don't pray as the hypocrites do in the synagogues, as the play actors do in the synagogues, just drawing attention to yourself. The second group he's targeting here are are Gentiles pagans the pray, he says with their many words i love the way in which william tyndale who first in a major way translated the bible into english and whose words lie so much behind the our authorized versions he translates this as people who babble over much and here are gentiles rather than jews who tend to be thinking, uh, actually, we need to twist God's arm. We need to manipulate him. We need to persuade him. We'll just keep battering at him until he gives in and gives us what we want. And Jesus says, no, you don't need to do that in relationship to genuine praying either. Uh, the tradition in which I grew up was one which held weekly prayer meetings and uh, they were given over to intercession there was something very good about that that i still miss as we so often put prayer way down on our agendas when we meet together but there was a sense in which uh, you got used to people praying as it was a performance Uh, They piled up phrase after phrase from the authorised version. It sounded absolutely wonderful. You began to wonder whether they were ever going to stop. Uh, And somehow or another the same people prayed in the same way, week after week after week. And Jesus is saying, actually I'm looking for something simpler and something more genuine than that. These days we may not have those old prayer meetings, But I wonder if I may gently say, in some of our charismatic worship, when we seek to genuinely pour ourselves out from God, there is a danger that we babble over much, to quote William Tyndale. So what does Jesus recommend instead? What does he say is the right way to do it? Well, when you pray, he says, go into your room, shut the door and talk, privately to your god who is in heaven the jewish practice was very much to pray publicly even daniel you might remember praying in his own room there in babylon prays with the windows open towards jerusalem so people are very well aware of what he's doing but jesus says no go in to secret and do it is he then saying that we should never pray together or pray Uh, 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 as a community publicly. No, there are other passages of scripture that tell us that we should be doing that and encourage us to do that. Uh, But what he's getting at is our motivation. Why are we praying like this? What does it say about our relationship with God? That's the key connecting thing through all these three lessons he's going to teach. Prayer is about relationship with your father. So if you want something from your father, you don't go out in the street and get a megaphone and uh, announce it to the neighbors. You go in house and have a conversation with your father. And you have that confidence that he will hear you Somebody has said, God listens to our prayers, not as if he's the on the end of a, uh, a loudspeaker when we've been speaking into a microphone. He listens to our prayers as if he's on the end of a stethoscope, listening to our heart. And so Jesus is saying, never mind the public performance, it's the reality of the relationship that really counts. And don't be worried about what other people will think or how they will judge your spirituality by the many words that come out of your mouth what's key is what you do between you and your father. Here's the second lesson, probably the best known prayer in the world. Matthew chapter six and verse seven and when you pray do not as we have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil For if you forgive others their trespasses your heavenly father will also forgive you but if you not do not forgive others their trespasses neither will your father forgive your trespasses Jesus immediately practices what he preaches. Did you notice that? You're not piling up phrases or pouring out words, babbling over much. In fact, this most famous prayer of all in the world is only 57 words in the original Greek version of it. (laughs) You compare that with uh, the number of words in a newspaper article. You compare that with the number of words in any law which we pass in parliament, any legislation in Europe, thousands upon thousands of words, any inquiry we conduct, hundreds and hundreds of pages. And in just 57 words, Jesus establishes what our priorities should be and gives us a pattern for prayer. It's understandable that because it's a pattern, many churches repeat it week after week after week. The danger then of course, is it becomes over familiar, but maybe there's good reason to repeat it at least more often than we do in the churches that I'm a part of. Jesus is actually taking up a prayer that they would have said at various stages in the synagogue. And he's reinforcing the hope of Israel. About the kingship and the reign of God. You'll be very familiar with it. You'll know how it breaks in two. The first three phrases. Uh, about our relationship to God and we're making requests about him. The second three phases appear to be us praying for ourselves and making our requests for our own lives. So first of all, he prays for God's name, that it might be honored in the world in which we live. Companies are often concerned about their reputation. And people will sometimes lose their jobs if they're a reputational risk for the company. What will it do to our business? What will it do to the way people look at us or think about us? And when we say, hallowed be your name, we're saying, Lord, we want to enhance your reputation. We want to live in such a way that we never bring your reputation into a risky situation or do anything that will damage your reputation at all. Let us in all our lives honor you. And the second and third clause maybe begins to spell out how you can do that. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. And that's looking to the future, praying that the day will come when God reigns completely in his universe again, that he takes his rightful place on the throne in the midst of his creation, living among his people, which was always his original design in the Garden of Eden. In the meantime, because Adam and Eve wanted to live independently and we're the children of adam and eve we've questioned his rule at best we only live partially under it and very many people actually oppose it for all sorts of reasons they don't want god to be king but when we pray your kingdom come we are praying for that final day when the creation will be recreated renewed restored When all things that have gone awry up to now will be put right, because it will all come under the reign of God. But inevitably, it's not just a prayer about the future. We're not just saying, do it then, Lord. We're also praying that your kingdom might dawn already here on earth now, just as it did in the life of Jesus. The kingdom of God, said Jesus, is at hand because I've arrived and throughout his life and teaching and ministry, we saw close up and personally the demonstration of what the world would be like if God was in control. So your kingdom come is praying that, however imperfectly, we might do our bit now. To make sure the future has already arrived, as it were. That's spelled out in the third request. It's a request that your will be done on earth as in heaven, which is why I say it's not just about then and there, but it's about here and now. For God's kingdom to dawn means obedience to his law. When later on in the chapter, chapter six and verse 33 Jesus says to his disciples about uh, making a priority of the kingdom seek first the kingdom of God, he adds and his righteousness. Because you can't seek the kingdom of God unless you're living rightly. According to his law. So there's his name his kingdom and his will that become our priority in prayer, how different that is from the way in which we so often just bamboozle our way into the presence of God and dump a shopping list of our requests on his desk, as it were. Lord, sort that out. The heavens above type thing from the old film. No, no. Actually, as we approach God, we need to centre our thoughts first and foremost on who he is and his character and his plan and his will. And then it's so often said we turn in the second part of the prayer to three requests concerning ourselves. First of all, that uh, we might have daily bread. Secondly, that our debts or our trespasses or our sins might be forgiven. And thirdly, that we might not be led into temptation. We could spend a long time unpacking each of these. There's so much more in these brief words. But let me ask you to reflect two things on the prayer for daily bread. First of all, first and foremost, it's talking about our dependence on God. It may be a prayer for ourselves, but actually it's a prayer that recognises God is the provider, God is the supplier. We're so used in our culture, aren't we, just to go down to Morrison's or Tesco's, the local supermarket, Oldie or Little, whichever it is, and just getting things off the shelves. We go into panic mode when things aren't there. The people that Jesus was talking to lived in a much more precarious world, the food supply wasn't uh, as regular. And it certainly wasn't as varied or as rich. They didn't particularly have a problem with obesity in Jesus' day because, well, it was bread and it was fish. And only on very special days, and if you were rich, was it ever meat. Uh, And because of harvests and because of uncertainty, they were very aware of their dependence on god and needed to pray to him to supply their needs but it not only points to god as provided it also points to the emphasis you're asking god here not for luxuries not for wants but for basics and in a world where so many other people are in great need we need to be looking what we're spending on ourselves and how indulgent we are in comparison with the needs of others to give us our sins here is a request actually for god's mercy he uses the terminology of debt we haven't got time to go into that this morning but sin always has a price tag to it in the bible there's a cost when we break god's law we are in debt to God, but we're often in debt to our neighbors, to our communities and to ourselves as well. And the great news of Jesus Christ is that he came to eradicate that debt from our lives, to pay off our bottom line of sin and give us a fresh start. And Jesus is saying by adding the little phrase, and we, as we also forgive our debtors, that you can only truly experience in this life the freedom that God longs for you to experience if you're not holding on to other people and making sure that they pay, but if you let them go and forgive just as God has forgiven you. Otherwise, there will be a blockage. You'll never know the peace, the liberty, the freedom that God intends to give. The third element recognizes that, again, the devil, as Peter puts it later on, is going around the place like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour or at least to trip up. And we need protection in a world from both the tempter and the temptations. So actually what appears to be a prayer about ourselves is a prayer to God as the supplier. As the merciful one who forgives. And as the protector who providentially leads us in life. To see how this prayer is amazing because packed into it. Are any numbers of dimensions about our relationship with God? God is our Father, we are His children. God is our deity, and we are His worshipers as we hallow His name. God is our King, and we pray for His coming kingdom as His subjects. God is our provider, and we are totally dependent on Him and needy. God is our savior. We need his mercy. God is our guide leading us through life. And we are his followers. God is our protector. And we are weak and vulnerable and defenseless. So he's taught us a basic lesson about the practice of prayer, which he's then illustrated by the pattern of prayer don't try to improve on jesus if he said few words and this is the priority let's learn from that but then as the sermon unfolds he goes on to talk about the promise of prayer and here we're looking at some verses in chapter seven of matthew matthew chapter seven verse seven onwards ask and it will be given you seek and you will find not, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives, and the one who seeks, finds, and the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more? Will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask? again, just two major things to pick up on here. First of all, Jesus tells us what we should do when we come to pray, ask and seek and knock. There's a sort of progression there it does emphasise the need to persevere in prayer. No, you don't want to try and manipulate God like the pagans do by babbling over much. You don't need to twist his arm, but actually it's a good thing for us in building our relationship with God, as it is at a human level. Not if everything falls into our lap immediately and quickly, just like that, but that if we, learn to go on building the relationship by going on asking which is what the original tense tense of the verb sense as we go on knocking and there are a number of parables about that as we go on seeking uh, and that little word seek in the middle what should it remind you of well we've already said it just A few verses before, at the end of what we know as chapter six. Jesus has told his disciples what they should seek. What is it? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. So when Jesus is saying, ask and seek and knock, he's not saying, Lord, I'd love a Rolls Royce. So will you just, uh, you know, I'm going to keep asking you until you deliver a Rolls-Royce and, of course, pay for the insurance and the petrol that it needs uh, to to go by uh, for the next few years. Uh, Just do what I want and fulfill my pleasures and desires. No, no, asking and seeking and knocking is about asking for the name of God to be hallowed seeking the kingdom of God to come, knocking so that the will of God is opened up in our lives. So you see, it's not a blank check. It's not saying as some foolishly believe, oh, I asked God for, that I'd win the lottery next week and it didn't happen, so I've given up believing in God. No, the asking and the seeking and the knocking occurs within a, context within wider teaching about what we're asking for and what we're seeking and why we're knocking the answer is very plainly God-centered it's about the relationship again Uh, and that relationship then emerges in the final thing that Jesus is saying we've looked at what we must do But then here is what God will do. If we ask and seek and knock according to his will, then how much more will your father in heaven give good gifts to your children? We often don't even know what the good gifts are that we need. And that's why sometimes we come to God, not with, specific requests but more general in order that God may pour into our lives good things that we're not aware of and if Jesus is not giving us a blank check here what he is doing is saying listen God is much more generous than you often think and to quote one New Testament scholar what this verse encourages is a willingness to explore the extent of God's generosity, generosity secure in the knowledge that only what is good will be given by God our Father back to George Muller George Muller moved from the little town of Tynmouth uh, where I grew up up to the city of Bristol and they also have a number of major orphanages without any secure finances to back them. the work goes on today in terms of different forms of child care but there on the downs for a long time were the huge buildings with many many orphans finding a home and security But as you read the story of George Muller, so the supply chain for the food was often interrupted or negligible. They didn't know where the next meal was going to come from. There were a number of occasions when they sat down to an empty dining room table, gave thanks to God. And as they did so, there was a knock on the door and the bread or the potatoes were supplied. His story is an amazing story of answered prayer time and time again. And in his diary in 1839, he wrote this phrase. When asked about it, I was not looking at the little in his hand, but at the fullness of God he knew the truth of this asking and seeking and knocking and and, and so do many thousands of christians my brother has worked for 50 years in eastern europe well before the iron curtain came down he's not done a job that would attract the headlines well except in the wrong way in the old eastern european days he's not been a great mass evangelist or revivalist preacher but he's been supplying the needs of the saints in eastern europe for years and years and years making connections enabling a number even in the days before the revolutions to come over to britain to study theology and once the revolution occurred they were able to go back and uh, set up their own bible colleges A remarkable story he's just written it down and i've just read Uh, the draft of it Uh, several times in that he talks about the days when particularly before the revolutions he would need to go to a village in Romania in particular or some town in Romania he'd not been to before to make contact with the Christian group Uh, he didn't have any maps no where he'd find them Uh, he may have had an address but often didn't Uh, they weren't able to speak to each other on the telephone and his story of if i dare say so of an ordinary christian is one of time and time again praying at the border that the guards wouldn't see what supplies he was taking in or in this village he'd never been to before, or a town where he needed to find his unknown way. And God remarkably answering prayer, asking, seeking, and knocking, and finding God the Father giving good gifts to him. It happens, it's for real. So here are three basic lessons on prayer from Jesus about how we practise it. It's not a performance. It's about a relationship between a father and a child. About what we should pray for, what our priorities ought to be. The pattern of prayer, God first. In fact, God throughout what we're praying. And it's about the promise of prayer. The Father in heaven is the father who pours out his gifts on us. And we need to explore more his generosity. God bless you.